0: Success stories and interviews with game changers and thought leaders who have overcome both in life and in business. Welcome to Vertical
1: Momentum. Guys, welcome to another episode of Vertical Momentum. I am your host, Richard Kaufman, also known as the Comeback Coach. Guys, this is going to be a fun episode. Um, it's going to be a, a learning episode. And the gentleman on, that we're talking to is a, uh, was recommended from a friend of mine, Michael Segru. Another amazing individual, and we're going to be talking about um, coming back from some uh, some trauma and stuff like that. But first, I want to thank our sponsor. As um, you guys, you guys know, um, I love coffee, and I'm drinking an iced coffee right now. her name um, is Carrie Marie Beaver. She has a company called Soldier Girl Coffee. And she's a, a veteran, so she only hires veterans. So it's a veteran-owned company. So if you, love com- if you love coffee like I do, check out Soldier Girl Coffee. Guys, this gentleman is a new friend that I made, and I'm so blessed to have him in my life. He's an author, coach, trainer, retired law, enfor- for- law enforcement officer. He's done everything that I love, and you know I have a heart my law enforcement officers my my family bleeds blue so uh brother i just want to thank you for coming on today how are you doing
0: richard i'm doing well and you had me at coffee it's a joy to be on your show
1: oh thank you so much and unfortunately you know in the military and also in the police departments i'm sure you've had your share of some nasty coffee
0: oh yeah the vending machines still give me trauma
1: Yeah, I, but that's something we, we can't claim that on our disability, though.
0: <laughs> no, unfortunately.
1: <laughs> so um, Michael, you know, Michael Sagrew, what an amazing individual and a, a great friend of mine, um, told me about your book that just came out. And, and I'm so excited. I, I just got it and I can't wait to read it. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from and what kind of little boy were you? We're going oh, yeah. to hop in the Wayback Machine.
0: Let's get into the weeds. Yeah, absolutely. Go. Well, my uh, my journey so far has taken me to quite a few places, but it started in San Francisco, California, back in the early 60s. And so I was a Bay Area guy for a long time. And uh, growing up in the city was a very interesting experience. In fact, one of the things that kind of shaped my destiny so to speak was back in the 60s they decided that the racial divisions in san francisco were really really compounding a lot of problems and so they wanted to do something called racial integration and they did a busing program where i was taken from the half mile walk to my neighborhood school and i was bused across uh, san francisco to the other side every day and I got to go to a school in the inner city, and I uh, I experienced just a tremendous amount of bullying, being that new kid coming into the school, and uh, you know really as I grew up in San Francisco, things started to take on a little bit of an edge for me where it wasn't a safe environment, and over the years that cultivated me into the martial arts being able to protect myself, and ultimately coming to the conclusion that I should use those skills to protect others. That led me into my career in law enforcement.
1: Now, did you get into the Bay Area music scene?
0: Not until later. And it really wasn't until I had kind of disconnected from that experience that I rediscovered the city that I was born in. And to this day, one of my favorite places to visit when I am back in the Bay Area is a little tiny bar called The Saloon in North Beach, where some of the best jazz and blues can be found in the entire world.
1: I love it. and One of my favorite band's journey is from that area, and uh, I, love the, I love the Bay Area. Um, so now, of course, being a, a lily white kid, you know, because I, one of the high schools, I went to a couple of different high schools I went to, it was called Barringer and it was like, and it was like 95% not white. So I got my ass beat a lot. <laughs> so until I started learning how to fight back. So what kind of martial art did you start studying?
0: You know, my root art Began with Wing Chun Kung Fu, which was, you know, most most famous uh, person that came from that lineage was Bruce Lee.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He, of course, later adapted his own art, Jeet Kune Do. But I liked the essence of Wing Chun because it was infighting. And one of the things I realized very quickly as a police officer was when it went bad, it went bad when you put hands on. And when you put hands on, well, all the tools on your tool belt suddenly became fairly useless. And in hand-to-hand combat, I did not have the edge that I was looking for. So this kind of infighting with Wing Chun was a fantastic way for me to develop the skills where I felt I was weakest. And then over the years, that's morphed into a whole number of things. Uh, I think one of the most practical arts I studied for street combat was Russian Systema. Okay. A lot of people haven't heard of sistema, but it is very similar to the Israeli art Krav Maga.
1: Yeah,
0: yep. And uh, now I study a form of old man martial arts, so I'm studying Chen Tai Chi with a uh, combat-oriented instructor.
1: Cool, and it's probably a lot easier on your joints. Well, definitely, <laughs> <laughs> I've got the cop knees. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of people, you know, a lot of times, like before I got into um, learning MMA and fighting MMA. I didn't realize, you know, every fight, any real fight usually always ends up on the ground. You know, if you're in a bar situation, you're not going to have everybody step back so you can start doing spinning back kicks. So that's <laughs> only for movies and, and for competition. So uh, what kind of guy were you in high school? Were you a uh, an athlete? Were you a student or both?
0: You know, I got to tell you that My journey through the school systems that I went through, the schools felt unsafe to me. So sort of like the environment, easily 95% of the school population in San Francisco was non-white, and a large percentage was African-American. And here comes the white kid from a suburban neighborhood with the board of supervisors singing kumbaya, let's all get along but the the experience I had was not that. And so school for me became pretty much a living hell. And as a student, I definitely suffered. I had teachers that were born in the late 1800s. And And when I didn't understand the mathematics that they were showing me, they took the ADD boy who just wanted to move his body and canceled his recesses, canceled his lunches. Uh, at one point, and I'm not making it up, uh, I was so slow to learn the processes that the teacher made me sit in a corner with a cap on that said dunce. And that is a true story. So academically through high school, I barely graduated. I took a year off saying to myself, I'll never pursue any academics. It's not for me. Uh, The teachers were very disconnected, cruel, didn't understand that, you know, someone like me whose kinesthetic needs to move his body, the worst thing you can do to me is strap me to a chair. And ultimately, after about a year off of high school, I started realizing that I wasn't going to get anywhere quickly. And I went into college and when I got into college, I met teachers who actually cared about their profession. And then I came to life. So I became a good student in college. But I got to tell you, everything before that was do the absolute minimum to get by and, uh, and just survive.
1: So after you got all your prere- prerequisites out of the way, uh, what did you start studying and what piqued your interest?
0: You know what piqued my interest i i took a general education required class uh, it was one of many you could choose from and it was in a section called the administration of justice and as soon as i got in there it woke something up in me and i started putting things together i started realizing that the street survival skills i had you know been given uh, by necessity in san francisco really led me to realize. You know, I think I could be a protector. It just kind of—I I woke up to it, and so I decided to pursue a degree in criminal justice and got that state university, and then made out of college into my first job in law enforcement.
1: So, what was tell us about graduating? You know, because I—I I come from military. Um, I reti- retired military. So, talk to us about becoming a rookie cop. What was that like, from graduation day to the first time you actually put on your gun belt and getting ready to go out and hit the street in your first meeting with everybody else? You know, I I really
0: lucked out in a way because by pursuing that degree, when I entered law enforcement as a new officer, I went into the academy. I'd already been studying almost everything that they had as a curriculum for four years. So for me, the academy became a breeze. And then there was another advantage that I hadn't really planned on it. But looking back, it was uh, one of those serendipity type of things. Almost no one in law enforcement at that time had any form of a college degree, not an AA, not a BA. The vast majority of people coming into the career were straight out of high school they turned 21 and they uh, they would apply for the academy. And that was all you needed back then. And so I had a leg up up academically and kind of breezed through the academy. But I still remember that uh, that very first day of getting through the field training program. And now it's my first day on my own. And I remember walking out to the car, I got all my gear and it's like, Wow, am I actually ready for this job? I remember that anxiety of like, holy moly, no one's holding my hand anymore. This is the real deal. And from there, it was an incredible journey. I mean, I just began to thrive and really, really enjoyed being in service to the community.
1: Now, when I, you know, like when I was in the military, um, you know, I, I grew up a street kid also, and I found out, you know, there's a book way that you have to do things, but when you get in the field, like literally I was in the field, um, there was a field way to do things where sometimes you had to put your street smarts and your book smarts together. So what was it like when you hit the streets? Because I'm sure sometimes you had to do things by the book, but then sometimes you kind of had to do, you know, s- some things that you, were, that you learned from being on the streets and talking to people and talk to us about that you know because a lot of people don't realize you guys sometimes it's just you and you could be surrounded by eight or ten different people and sometimes you might have like I always tell people there are people that are book smart then there are people that have street smarts and it's good if you have both of them and you seem to have both of them so what was that like getting used to being on your own and being in the streets at the same time
0: yeah I love that question and I, I think you're absolutely spot on to be well-rounded as a police officer uh, military really any first responder but specifically within the profession of law enforcement you do need to have that blending of yeah i know the book stuff but let's take academics and put it into practical application and very often the Academics become the foundation you then work from where you have that instinct, that street smarts kind of personality where you can navigate through all this labyrinth of gray. The world see to our profession either this or black and it's white, it's crystal clear. But law enforcement like that. Law enforcement is is just just gray gray and different hues of gray as you try to navigate the complexity of all this human dysfunction, human trauma, and you're trying to do the best you can in the spirit of the law. You know, the, the officers I saw that were super focused academically, they would go by the letter of the law. And I never felt that the exact application of the law was the best way to navigate the street. I felt that it was always better to come from your heart, using your instincts and really asking what's in the highest interests of everyone involved in this right now. And that didn't necessarily line up precisely with the academics, the policies, the guidelines. Sometimes you had to get really, really in order to be able to do this extraordinary service to the community. But I think as long as you're able to have that kind of instinct for the street and at the same time you come from a service mindset, not a power dynamic, not a I'm going to dominate you dynamic, but I'm here to serve, that's the way you stay safe. You know, when I was in some of the rougher neighborhoods, which is where I enjoyed patrolling, I, I like to be active if you haven't caught on to that. But treating people with respect, dignity, and being fair in the application of the law, even when you had to take someone off to jail, that gained me a respect within those communities I patrolled. And as a result of that, we kind of worked collaboratively rather than adversarially like you see a lot of the challenges in law enforcement today. They seem to be coming from this divisiveness, this adversity of us versus them and everybody trenching into their structures. This is not going to get the job done. It's only going to make things worse.
1: And, you know, I love it, you know, and I believe that even, you know, you are a police officer, there's such thing as street cred for police officers. Um, and what I, that I mean by that is there are some people in communities where they know, Hey, you know, he's a cop, but he's all right. He knows they're taking, they're keeping us safe. Instead of all oh, you said of coming from that position of power, you, you come for that position of, listen, I'm just here to help, you know, instead of saying, I'm just, you know, trying to lay down the law because that does, that does not work all the time that, you know, because everybody has bad days, you know, whether you're, you know, uh, civilians, you know, we all have a bad day. And sometimes police officers have a bad day. And a lot of times, you know, my best friend is a police officer retired, he just retired now. And of course, sometimes everybody has a bad day. And you don't have to lock everybody up for everything. You know what I mean?
0: (laughs) It's, it's really true, Richard, you know, one of the things I tried to keep as a perspective and you know I wasn't always successful at this but I tried to really see the humanity in every single human being and the choices they were making and you know when you're a law enforcement officer and you are saturated with so much dysfunction and and you see everyone on their worst day you know for the most part that's what you're going to and so let's say i'm i I find you and you happen to have too many drinks that night and you're drunk driving and i have to take care of business we've got to handle that but then the officer can say see everybody's a jerk everybody is a criminal there are no good people left in the world well hold on a minute 99.99% of Richard Kaufman's life is perfect. He's an awesome guy. And on this one night, he made a mistake. I always tried to keep that as a foundation of, if I were to take this person out of this circumstance and just sit down with them, I'd probably like them.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I, I worked for corrections. I think I was in a year and a half. And corrections, and I found that for me, I was able to talk down more situations instead of having to get, you know, doing a an extraction and going there with hats and bats. Just say, listen, you know, you got to come out, bro, and talk to him as a man, and then they would come out. So I was able to get out of more situations than I think I was able to get into. Situations. So, talk to us about sometimes just talking down, not talking down to, but talking, you know, down, escalating a situation, and how that came, how that helps you in, in situations in your career.
0: Yeah, I'll give you an example of a couple of uh, times where, you know, one was creative and the other was simply respect. So went to uh, arrest a man. He was wanted on assault with deadly weapon charges. He was a pretty serious guy. And found him at his house, uh, confronted him in his living room, and he was angry. And he had children there. The children were young. uh, We're talking like five to eight years old, a couple of them. His wife's there. And this guy is squaring off to go physical. And so I came up to him. I said, hey, let me talk to you for a minute. He calmed down for a second. I said, look, here's the deal. This warrant's not going to go away. I'm not going to go away. So here's what I'd like to do. I want to save you the embarrassment of putting you in handcuffs in front of your children. You give me your word that you'll walk outside with me. We'll go around the corner out of sight and take care of business. I'm going to let you say goodbye to your family. You let them know that whatever it is you want to tell them, and we'll do this the right way. And he really, like, just melted at that because his biggest fear was not showing up like a man in front of his kids. And for him, that meant I better fight the cops. So he realized that if I was allowing him to say face like that, that he would then go along with the program, and it's exactly what he did. So there's these moments where we have the opportunity to de-escalate something by, again, coming from your heart and not in a weak way. So many officers get triggered by that idea. You know, oh, you're open-hearted. Yeah, I'm open-hearted. I'm fearless. I'm open. I am a warrior who has his heart open. And that is not a detriment. It's an enhancement to every aspect of how I go about law enforcement. And so, you know, that's one way that I applied it another way was I got to this, we had this verbal judo thing and got down to the, you know, the five-step hard style, it's tactical communications. And the final question when someone isn't going along with the program is, is there anything I can say or do to get you to go along with the program? And so I did that with a guy who was really mad. He uh, was, you know, 5150, a little bit uh, off the rocker there. And I got to that final question, and he says to me, I want a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I said, what? You heard me. I want a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I said, so you're telling me, did if I get you a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you'll go along with the program? Yep. He said, I swear to you, I will get you the best peanut butter and jelly sandwich you've ever had in your life. All I need you to do is turn around, put your hands behind your back, I'm going to put some handcuffs on you and I'll stop on the way up to jail and get you the absolute best peanut butter and jelly sandwich you've ever had. He goes, okay. So I did and put him in the car. I drove to a delicatessen we had. I beeped my siren a couple of times. One of the people came out and was asking me what's up. And I said, right now I need the best peanut butter and jelly sandwich you can possibly make. And so you know, once again, people are almost a little incredulous that I'd go to that step. But the way that I look at it is here's a guy who's mentally having challenges. He sees me, but he doesn't see me. He sees my representation of authority, he sees my badge, my uniform. That's what I am to him. I'm not Roger. I'm the... Now, this cop says, I'm going to get you that peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I follow through on it. Now I know that I have just set up an officer in the future to interact with him, and he may not have that reactive, adverse reaction to the officership in the first place. He may think, oh, the cops in this town are actually pretty cool, and maybe we de-escalate a future incident as well. It's a much broader brush, Richard, when we start thinking beyond the immediate moment and, again, come from that place of, Yeah, let me see if I can work this out. Is it in policy to go get a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for a prisoner? No, but that's the spirit of the law rather than the letter.
1: You know, and I love it. You know, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And uh, one thing that I've learned by studying him is, you know, he was meek. He wasn't weak. And meekness is just power under control. So I totally get what you're talking about. Now we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, PTS and stuff like that. So, you know, one of my best friends, like I said, my best friend, he's a police officer. Now he just retired a little while ago. Thank God. And um, he used to do stuff like hostage negotiations and all that good stuff. And he would say, you know, hardest thing was coming home to my wife and kids. And my wife asked me, you know, how, how was my day? And I just got back from a quadruple homicide, including children. And he's like, how do you talk to your wife about something like that? And he said, that's where my partners, that's where, you know, I call my, my people that I have in my corner, I call them my amigos. There's like a group of three or four of us that we, you know, we're, we're there for each other. So talk to us about um, stuff like that and how important that thin blue line really is.
0: Well, that that thin blue line is getting thinner under current challenges. You know, the post traumatic stress issue is significant. I had my own journey through it, and I was diagnosed with complex post traumatic stress disorder, which just means there were that got lodged in my psychology and my expression of that challenge was suicidal ideation for almost 5 years and it was in rushing into danger trying to get myself uh, taken out so i could kind of go out in a blaze of glory now it really so, so took-
1: it was kind of opposite of suicide by cop
0: yeah exactly opposite right so here I am going and 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 the interesting part Richard about this this idea of rushing into danger not waiting for backup that kind of thing um, which I did fairly frequently as I started to kind of unravel and de-evolve I did this in my off-duty time too you know full contact martial arts sparring I did mountain biking as as if i was entering the atmosphere and you know bursting into flames i road raced motorcycles i did a lot of very hazardous activity all the time and it took me to get into therapy to realize oh wow i was actually actively trying to harm myself that's pretty incredible and so the accumulation of this i didn't recognize it nor did i really recognize the slow de-evolving of my personality because it didn't happen in the snap of a finger for cumulative and just began degrading me over time. My department recognized my behavioral shifts and I started getting awards and commendations for being super cop, you know, because every time I rushed into something, I just got lucky and it all worked out. So a lot of officers are experiencing some level of of post-traumatic stress. Now, whether that gets formally diagnosed as a disorder or not, there's a huge push, as you're aware, of taking that post-traumatic stress and calling it an injury. And the reason for that is simple. A disorder can be managed, but typically not fixed, and an injury can be overcome. And in my case, I can say categorically that the work that I did, the therapy that I received, helped me to overcome it 100%, and so it ended up being a gift, but my belief is that every first responder to some level is dealing with post-traumatic stress and the effects of that, because exactly as you just outlined, who do we have to talk to, and there's still so much around seeking help, Beyond going to the bar, pounding a few with your buddies and maybe talking about it there, which helps. It's a little bit of venting. But are we really getting to the core trauma? No, absolutely not. And so it continues to build. And look at the profession. Look at the statistics on lifestyle disease, disease. on suicidal ideation. These numbers can increase in spite of us tossing more money than ever employee assistance, culturally competent psychologists, peer support programs, chaplaincy programs. Now we're going, excuse me, we're going downhill. So at the end of the day, what are we really looking at? You know, Michael Sugru, who was a previous guest on your show talks about, we got to smash the stigma, exactly my belief is if we begin to culturally shift into wellness and resiliency practices as a cultural expectation academy forward and we make it acceptable mandatory necessary to have a mental health checkup one to two times a year we can establish that baseline and hopefully that professional can spot us de-evolving before sorry about that, before it manifests into something more significant like post-traumatic stress. I mean, Richard, we go to the doctor to get a physical, we go to the dentist to get our teeth cleaned a couple times a year, keep our teeth from falling out of our head. Why are we not going to see a mental health professional a couple of times a year just to make sure we're tracking okay? Because, you
1: know, let me ask, you know, because I know from, well, one of the things that really bugs me, um, is that they say on average American male lives to the age of 78 in the United States. Yeah. But first responders, the average age of death is 59. So that's a 1920 year difference. And that's way unacceptable. But now I also know in the military that um, we all joke about mental health, but there is a stigma where if we're saying, you know, all right, I'm going to go see the, you know, the mental health, then it's kind of, we start worrying because we all we're always taught, you know, that the strongest, you know, your weakest link, it will break the strongest chain. So now, and if you have police police officers that they know they're going to get the, um, checkup with every, was it twice a year, maybe tw- every two years, they're going to figure out how to uh, buck the system and change, you know, and give them the answers that they want to hear. So how do we get to the answers of us be- being able to being, being real with the psychiatrists or the mental health av- advocates? You
0: know, I, I love that question and it's a matter of cultural adaptation where it becomes the expectation, where it's accepted. And we got to get the training done very, very early in the process. Went through the, the academy. academy, the California law enforcement, California Post, had a block on stress management training. So out of the entire 20 weeks, this idea of stress and its accumulation in the body consisted of two hours of training. And it was taught by someone who was not a professional in the field, they were reading from a learning domain. That's it. And since that time, we haven't made much progress. It's still about the same. To me, it's a, it's a two-fold approach. We have to make it cultural and begin in the academy with extensive training that really helps us understand this is what's happening and here's what you can do about it. But then it comes down to that culturally competent team of psychologists, you know, whether you got one or 20 or a hundred, depending on how big your agency is, those folks have what chaplains have done. Some of the most successful programs when it comes to supporting officers is in chaplaincy. And every chaplain will tell you that when they first come in, There's all kinds of cynicism. They think they're going to jam God down their throat or try to preach to them. And that's absolutely not what chaplaincy is about. So the chaplain keeps showing up. They show up to briefings. They go on ride-alongs with the officers. And over the course of about two years, everybody realizes, wow, this person's actually here for me. Huh, that's cool. And I can actually talk to them and they'll listen. And they won't tell anybody because we have a sacred communication privilege. Huh. And the next thing you know, on the ride-alongs, the officers are opening up. They're letting out what they keep bottled in because you can receive that. Psychologists in EAP programs need to do the same thing. They need to embed themselves in the organization. They need to put on training programs constantly, ride along with the officers and earn that trust. Because once we can break that barrier down, the door becomes open to allow some of that stuff to be processed, to talk about it, and to begin to realize this is damaging me. You know, Richard, you said the average age of death for an officer is 59. Yeah, you're right. It's somewhere between 59, 57, 62, somewhere right in there, well below the average. Uh, that a man should live to and a woman should live to and it's a direct reflection no organism in nature can live under the constant hormones of stress saturating the physical body it simply cannot they were meant for short-term survival but we do it day to day and it is affecting us profoundly so that's part of smashing the stigma is getting this this idea out that look You're human. This job is tough. And you're going to see some things that no normal human being can process without a little bit of help. And if we make that culturally acceptable, we could turn the corner tomorrow.
1: You know, and and I love that. Now, I just interviewed a gentleman uh, last week. He was a police officer, uh, had a police-involved shooting, uh, got hurt on duty, and had to retire. And he said that he went through such a deep depression because, you know, like in the military, they, te- you know, we know it's not taught, but we know that once we stepped off base uh, the, and I try never to curse on my show, but it's just something that's so true. Um, when, once you step off base, the military does not give a shit about you. And the phone will stop ringing. And I know from the people, some of the people that I've talked to that were, retired law enforcement officers. Um, A lot of that happens to a lot of them when they retire that, you know, they're, they're no longer in the game, as we say. And um, now they're alone with their, with their own, they're in their own head and their own thoughts. And sometimes that's not a great place to be. So talk to us about when a police officer retires, how they can go about not, about not eating their gun and actually getting help when they retire.
0: It's really, really critical uh, that you brought this up. It's, it's one of the kind of things that nobody really talks much about. You know, I was, I was having a conversation with Dr. Joel Fay, who is a retired he's a psychologist. He's the clinical director of the West Coast Post Trauma Retreat Center talking about suicide statistics and he was telling me that the numbers are actually three to four times higher than what's reported for a whole variety of reasons and one of them is we do not collect that statistic on retired officers and yet it's one of the higher populations of suicide it's exactly as you described the reason is you identify as this thing it's not I practice law enforcement for the city of, it's I am a police officer. And so you have this family. You spend more time with these people than you do your own family in many cases. They become your brothers and sisters, and they got your six. They got your six in crisis situations. So the trust and the bond that's built is profound. And you retire, and for about the first two to three months, you still show up around the department. You're still invited to the parties you're still part of the team, and then very slowly, you just start to not do that anymore because you're not invited out of sight, out of mind, and you suddenly find yourself utterly isolated. One of the things that is so important, at least to me, is to have things outside of the department personnel that you associate with as hobbies. Maybe you have a strong connection into your church, Maybe you have strong connections into other groups that you enjoy that don't have anything to do with law enforcement. And hopefully you got a lot of friends who are not in the business so that when you leave the business and you experience this incredible isolation where your identity is now in question, you've got friends, family, cultures, hobbies, things that you can now rely on To step into that new chapter of your life. Everybody thinks it's going to be terrific. I'm going to go play all this golf and I'm going to do these projects around the house. Yep, you do. And four to six months later, that all stops because you've done it all and you're bored playing golf. Now what? And if you don't have something that ignites this passion inside you to live your life, well, you're just going to check out. You're either going to check out physically Mentally, or you're going to commit
1: suicide. And you know, like I, you know, like when I, I got thrown out of the military the first time for being a drug addict. I got back in the second time, um, tried to become the ultimate soldier, super soldier. Uh, got hurt on duty, and they medically retired me. And the day that they medically retired me was the day that I attempted suicide, which was Memorial Day, 2012. And the reason was, was I only knew myself as Sergeant Kaufman. You know, I I went to every school, I went to every class, whatever you want me to do, whatever I needed to do to become the ultimate soldier, that's what I I wanted to become. And the day when they told me I was no longer Sergeant Kaufman, um, that kind of just broke me. So talk to us about so many times what we did became who we were and having to trying to figure out who, okay, you know, I'm not Sergeant Kaufman anymore. I'm Richard. And now I got to figure out who I am. And that was the hardest part. So talk to us about, you know, same thing with police officers. I'm sure. Is that the same thing?
0: Spot on. Yeah, it is. It is so prevalent this identification, you know, there, there is something interesting happening, and it's the new officers coming in. I was having a conversation recently with a sergeant at the midpoint in their career, and they were talking about this division between the old school officers, you know, 15 years on toward retirement, and the new officers coming in, the rookies up to about the 10-year mark-ish and she said, "There's such a huge difference in the way they go about law enforcement." And I, I asked her to expand on that. And she said, "Well, the old guys think that these new folks coming in, this millennial generation, is weak. They're they're they are they they do not understand how, how to be, be a cop. You know, know. they're they're sensitive. Uh, they don't think cop 24 seven. So the old generation really." You know has a lot of disparaging things to say about this new breed of officer coming in but the sergeant was telling me the new officers coming in are excellent at their job they do a really good job when they're there and when they're not there they come home and put on that hat fully they are mom dad brother sister son daughter niece nephew friend partner whatever it is that they are off duty They're fully that. And they let the job go when they're not there. Like they're very effective at it. She said, the other thing is they don't really identify as police officers where, you know, you're in that mindset 24-7. You're watching the news, reading the latest tactical stuff. She said, they're really good at all stuff they need to be good at, but then they just let that go. They, They don't identify like I am Sergeant Kaufman. They're not like that. And then she said the really interesting piece for her is, it is not uncommon at a critical incident for the new officers to come up to her and and say, hey, Sarge, that was kind of a heavy call. I'm feeling a little bit out of sorts on that. Would you mind if I gave EA? I think I need to talk about this one. And she said, you know, this is where the older officers look at them and think they're weak. And I sit here and think that's how it should be done right there. That's much more healthy way of navigating all the challenges of the job where you're aware that these things are happening to you so you know richard when i think about this this idea of you know what can we do take up uh, you know a page out of that new rule book right there and really start to think about you know who would i be if i wasn't a police officer because tomorrow in the career is not guaranteed just like you brother one injury away, and you're off the island. Mm-hmm. And no one has spent the time to think, you know, what else do I love to do? Like, like, I'm Richard. What's Richard love to do besides military, super soldier, besides Roger, law enforcement? Well, you know, I, I really like to be out in nature. I like to hike, and, and I love to learn. And I personally... After my journey through post-traumatic stress disorder, I love to experiment with things that are outside the box for self-care practices, things that send chills up officer's spines like practicing yoga and meditation and Tai Chi. I get curious about all that. And so I have this rich life beyond the career, and I still care about the career, even though I'm retired I continue to serve my brothers and sisters who are on the front lines in any way that I can. But I have a very diverse life that brings balance. I give it this way, Richard. Here's the easiest analogy I can have. If you put your entire load in the washing machine and stuff it to one side and fire up that washing machine, guaranteed the thing's going to spin out of control and start walking against the wall. What I'm suggesting here is spread your load out, open yourself up to new things, learn all the time and find these other areas that you're passionate in so that if any one of those things has to go away, you're not voted off the island. You're like, oh, good. Now I can dedicate more time to this.
1: Yep. And by the way, the gentleman that I was talking about, his name was Brock. we He's a friend of ours, by the way. Brock Breville. Love Brock. (laughs) Um, And I didn't realize we got like so many people that are interconnected with each other, like Tammy Moses. She's she's like one of my best friends. So uh, it's amazing how when you start looking like for me, my passion now is interviewing people. You know, I love having a podcast. I love not. I love just talking to people and getting into their minds and figuring out their whys. And I, you know, I, I I think that's why I love talking to you, talking to Michael, because you can, there's so many different things that, you know, that we can, that need to be talked about. You know, I, I'm just getting into meditation um, because of my friend, his name is John McCaskill and he's a former Navy SEAL commander and him and his partner, Will Schneider have a, uh, podcast and they talk about they're always talking about mindfulness and you know taking time 50 even if it's just 15 minutes a day to meditate so that's something that i'm working on so talk to us about self-care because like one hack that i've been using to, and i heard somebody say I don't remember who it was was um, i have my phone out and i'm do i do my work until the battery dies and then i plug it in and then i go do something that i enjoy until the phone is charge back up again so i'm charging my battery and my phone up but i'm also personally charging my battery and i think that hack works for me what are some hacks that people can do for self-care because self-care is so important you know and like we always talk about we cannot pour from an empty cup so what fills your cup and what are some self-care things that our audience can uh, learn from and start using today
0: You know, I I love this question. Of course, it's so diverse. Let me state a bottom line foundation. Set time aside every day for doing something that helps you rest, restore, and fills your heart with happiness and joy. It's really that simple. If that means you like to go outside and garden, great. Go do that. If that means you go take a yoga class, or a meditation class wonderful go do that is there any best practice well the low-hanging fruit is for sure getting your sleep in order because chronically sleep deprived people are not going to do well from a resilient standpoint so number one number two and number three on the list of rest and rest sleep and i've been doing an informal survey Uh, I do a lot of training in mindfulness and resiliency for first responders. I've been in front of tens of thousands of police officers over the years. I've conducted a survey on sleep. And uh, the average that the police officers I have interviewed sleep is five hours a night. And it's not quality. And that is no, that's gasoline on a stress fire. So number one is always sleep. But then anything that causes you to have this kind of playful childlike wonder, that is the resilience practice that you should do. And it does not matter what it is. You like to go folk dancing, wonderful. You like to put a set of headphones on and listen to beautiful classical music from Mozart, wonderful. There is no one size fits all here. There's your unique way to feel like I'm setting that load in the washing machine in a more balanced way. I'm putting some money back in my bank account. When I do self-care practices, I spend, and this will sound outrageous to maybe you and some of your listeners for sure, I spend two to four hours every day in self-care practices. And for example, how do I fit that in? Well, as soon as you and I are done with this podcast, I live in the Colorado Rockies at 8,500 feet. I've got three acres where I've built walking trails around the entire property on the side of a mountain. And when we are done, I'm gonna go outside. I'm gonna bundle up because it's still cold up here. And I'm gonna take about a 20 or 30 minute walk through my forest, practicing some very gentle breath work so that I can hit my reset button. There's half an hour right there. You can find it all over the place. And if anybody's really finding time, because this is the number one complaint I get from my coaching clients, from my students in the classroom, the number one complaint is, Roger, I don't have time. I have yet to find a person who couldn't find at least 30 extra minutes a day dedicated to whatever self-care practice they love by simply turning off a screen. Stop scrolling your social media give up one TV show, don't listen to the news, which is pissing you off and inflaming you mentally anyway. I promise you take 30 minutes of your screen time and dedicate it to yourself. You do that consistently. You're going to notice profound change.
1: You know, and that's something that I've been working on the last couple of weeks, you know, because like one of my favorite podcasters, his name is Ed Milet. You know, he always talks about how, um, Either you control your habits or your habits control you. And that 40% of our day is something that we do habitually and we don't even realize that we're doing it. So if we can change some of that 40% to reprogram our thoughts for success, then that's something that we can do. And that our most important times are our morning rituals and our nighttime rituals. Like for me, before I used to go to bed, I, would, I, for some reason, I was always, um, always loved forensics. I've always loved, to, you know, serial killers and stuff like that. And I would listen to this, all the stuff before I went to bed and wonder why I'm not getting good sleep. <laughs> so I, it's, what I started doing is I start, you know, I take my melatonin an hour before I shut off all TVs. And now I just listen to something, a book on audio and then go to bed. And I find that I'm getting much better sleep um, and I'm getting more REM sleep. So can you talk to us about uh, uh, having a morning, what your morning ritual is and your nighttime ritual?
0: You know, Richard, I want to make a quick comment on something you said there that's super critical. So in our subconscious processor in the autonomic nervous system, which is running over 90% of our body functions without thinking about it, Inside our brain, we've got this little piece of that called the reticular activating system.
1: I just talked about that not even 15 minutes ago. I love it. I love it. Talk to us. And
0: that reticular activating system is like a tuning fork, right? So when we feed it something, it recognizes those things in the environment. Uh, The easiest example is, let's say that you decide you want a new car and you're going to get that silver Toyota Tacoma pickup with the black leather interior. And all of a sudden, everywhere you go, you're seeing that particular vehicle. Well, it was there all the time. You just tune that reticular system to now scan the environment for it. If you fall asleep to the television, the content you're falling asleep to or you watch it right before bed, that's tuning that subconscious processor to be working on. Is it fear-based? Is it in your highest interest? Is it putting money back in your resiliency bank account or is it draining you? And, you know, now what are you looking for in your environment? We come home, we watch the television, right? We go to the news. Worst possible thing we can do right before bed is to watch the news because it's filled with more human trauma. As if we didn't get enough of that at work, we're now gonna saturate our consciousness right before our sleep period, when our brain is at 10.5 Hertz and sucking it all into that system. And now that's our subconscious processor working on that all night. And we wonder why we can't sleep well, why we're waking up in the middle of the night, why our heart might be racing, why we don't feel rested the next day. So you have that exactly right. And it's beginning to take control of some of those things with a little bit of awareness that there are some profound effects that take place with the programming we're putting inside that subconscious mind. Now, that's a choice. We can program it with all that cynicism, negativity, dysfunction, or we could program it with positivity and shift it into a whole new paradigm. Now, I always get pushback on this, Roger, that's too simple, et cetera. And I say to everyone who says that, just try it. Do it for 30 days and tell me you don't notice a difference. One of the ways that I think is a beautiful end-of-day ritual, and I love that you use the word ritual, because that's really it. When we are practicing something every day, we begin to now create that in our subconscious mind as an expectation. That's how we do it. One of the most profound things we can do is at the end of the day, right before bed, when that brain is in 10.5 hertz and we're getting sleepy, is to practice gratitude. Yes, And just take a few moments to write down what you were grateful for in the day. That could be something as simple as, you know, I'm really grateful that I saw that elderly couple who was crossing the street in front of my car today and they were still holding hands and they were in love. I'm really grateful that my kids spent an hour on that really cool piece of artwork that's hanging on the refrigerator right now. I'm really grateful I got to serve that human being at work today and help that woman get into a shelter and away from that abusive husband today. It's a matter of doing that and feeling the gratitude. And this is, you know, it's the F word, Richard, feeling. No cop wants to hear the F word because we practice muting our emotions to navigate the insanity and chaos. I get that that's a survival mechanism, What I'm asking is, at the end of the day, if you can allow yourself to just feel a little bit of that gratitude, a little bit of the love that that child has for you, a little bit of the gratitude for seeing that couple that shows you love can survive an entire lifetime. When you do those kind of things right before bed, well, guess what that reticular activating system is now being tuned to? And what you're going to find is over the course of about a month of consistent practice, that negativity, that cynicism, it's gonna to start to diminish. It's never gonna go away completely, but you're gonna soften it. And what you're gonna notice is you're gonna notice more of those moments, like the kid playing in a park, chasing bubbles, or the puppy frolicking you know, across the grass. You're gonna start noticing those things and you're gonna smile inwardly and go, oh, cool, that's cool. And you won't even know it's happening because it's a subconscious process. You have the key to it, Richard. Create a ritual every day that puts money or your resiliency bank account. My self-care practices, most people would think, no way, I, I couldn't possibly dedicate that much time to it. But what's happened over time, as I've done these practices, they're now non-negotiable. I can't start my day without doing them or I'm going to feel off. I'm not going to be my 100%. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. The question is, which side of that fence do you want creating your reality, right? Are you going to look at life through that negativity, dysfunction, cynicism? Or are you going to look at it through positivity, hope, and inspiration? And at the end of the day, feel, wow, this was a good day. I can't wait to go home and see my family. I'm engaged in life.
1: You know, and I love that. And like I, I tell my clients that I do coach, you know, that your mind is is like your Facebook account. What I did is, you know, about about four or five months ago, I got in a deep, dark funk and I started thinking, man, I I see a lot of crap on my Facebook feed. So I started liking all the positive stuff. And eventually all the positive stuff weeds out the negative stuff. So your, your mind is just like a Facebook account. If you just go in and just start focusing on the positives, your mind's like Facebook. If you like in heart, everything that's positive, that's what they're going to show you. Same thing with your mind. If you think you're always positive, you're always thinking for the best in people, eventually it may take time, but your mind's going to start changing. Like you said, with that, with that part of your brain, your mind will start changing. So now question, talk to us about the amazing book that you just put out.
0: Yeah. And by the way, what a brilliant analogy. I love your analogy and you brought it right into modern time with something everybody can relate to. Great job on that, brother.
1: <laughs> I, I, I'm learning something. I mean, I've had like, now I've had over 300 interviews. So I think I'm learning a little bit.
0: Oh, I love it. That's, that is phenomenal service. Very much appreciate that. Well, yeah, thank you. Um, You know, I, I was deeply honored to be able to, co-author a book with Dr. Renee Thornton. And Dr. Thornton and I got together because, um, you know, she has this great background from a previous work she did with something called the Heroes Project. And she has these foundations called the Eight Pillars of Wellness. And these eight pillars are really psychologically, if you're doing well in each of these areas, people report great levels of life satisfaction and happiness and the pillars are very simple it's the physical pillar cognitive emotional financial spiritual social and professional and these are all aspects of how much capital do you have how is your savings account in each of those areas and the idea behind the book was we called it navigating adversity tactical self-care For first responders. And the idea was to utilize my journey through post traumatic stress, where my story is featured in this book, and then to navigate that into each of these pillars where you can see where, okay, here's what a healthy emotional pillar looks like. Here are the adversities you might face. And then here's the steps you can do to counterbalance that load in the water money back in that resiliency bank account. So this is more than just hearing my story. It's more than understanding the challenges we face, because I think we all have a fairly good handle on that. But this actually gives you action steps that you can do in real time to create shifts in each of those areas. And for example, you might be doing fantastic in your physical aspect, right? Your physical pillar may be just dialed in, you're you're exercising, you're eating well, you're doing just great. You don't need anything there. But maybe your spiritual capital is a little off. And in our world, spiritual does not necessarily mean dogmatic ideology or religious. It means that you hang your hat on an absolute value system. You know, for you, Richard, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and that's a huge component of your absolute value system. But someone else who may not have that same patterning says, you know, I don't necessarily thrive that way, but I do believe in the United States Constitution, and the United States Constitution is a a sacred document to me. That's my absolute value system. If you don't have one, we know that. You're now taking everything on to yourself, and there's no way to sustain that. It's going to break you down. We have to have something outside of ourselves. So the idea behind the book was, here are the eight pillars. Take a look at these things. Look at the advice, determine which ones you need the biggest boost in, and then do these practices that will help you to take a step in that regard.
1: You know, and I love that because, you know, I was in the healthy fitness inter- industry for over 30 years. And I found that if something if if he, if something is wrong, because, you know, a lot of times when somebody needs help, we don't think about the total body, the total man or woman. We just think, you know, whether it's okay mental health, but we're not talking about their physical health. We're not talking about their spiritual health, and usually, when one thing is off, it throws off everything. So I love what you what you definitely are talking about. So last two questions, and well, for you, uh, certain people I asked the last two questions, but for you, I'm going to ask three questions because um, <laughs> you're a special kind of guy. Uh, so. <laughs> How do we find you? How do we get how do we pick up your new book? How do we find your podcast?
0: Very cool. So the easiest way to get a hold of me, if anybody has any questions, if I can point you in the right direction, it's it's one of the access service that I love to do. I know a lot of people, I can connect people, and so I'm very happy to do that. And I invite anyone to reach out to me at any point. The easiest way is through my email, and that's roger at herotalk.org. And don't forget that Roger has a D in it, r-o-d-g-e-r at herotalk.org. If you'd like to get a copy of the book, we decided that the easiest and fastest way to do this is to publish it on Amazon. So you can go to Amazon and you can uh, just type in navigating adversity and it'll pop right up. Dr. Renee Thornton and Roger Ruge are the authors on that. And I'm sorry, what was that third question? <laughs> uh,
1: so what I, do you podcast also?
0: oh thank you yeah yeah. i have taken a little bit of a break on the podcast uh i've gotten about 90 episodes currently um at the podcast and you know the easiest way to do this richard i i I ran into a little bit of a challenge and the challenge was there are some anti-law enforcement groups uh, that i'm not going to do the dignity of naming and they came after me in a number of ways. They're, they're now setting themselves uh, to try to hassle people who are in support of the first responder community and especially law enforcement. So I had my website um, going and they, they came after me there. They came after me on social media. And so I, I really just had to pull back and retool myself to a place where not only am i safe but the community's safe right because the truth is right now we're under a a lot of scrutiny a lot of attack a lot of hostility so i decided to uh, create a patreon page which is a membership only page where people can go to now receive uh, the podcast articles from me. They can connect with me directly there, and I set the lowest level membership at just five bucks a month. That supports my work, and uh, I also uh, dedicate a 10% of the proceeds of that to the first responder network that uh, supports severe PTSD in our first responder communities. So it's just as little as five bucks a month. You get access to all the podcasts and all that good stuff. And uh, that is found by just going to herotalk.org. And hero herotalk.org will redirect you to my Patreon page. I just felt that we needed to vet everyone who comes in, make sure they're in support of the community, and, and just get rid of the damn trolls, man. They're, they've been a real problem for me. Uh, and you can also find me on LinkedIn. For whatever reason, the trolls don't go to LinkedIn yet. And so I have a page there under my name, Roger Ruge, and the last name is R U G E. Those are the best ways to get a hold of me. And if you subscribe to my podcast, you know, of course, you're going to get access to all the material as well. So the Patreon page, you access to many of the archives I have.
1: I love it. So now, the last two questions I have. Um, we live in a crazy world right now, um, especially just coming out coming out of COVID. Some of you know some states are just coming out of as of like Friday. So you know we have parents that have lost their jobs. They're driving for DoorDash, just trying to put food in their kids' mouths, and we got grandparents homeschooling kids. So if I ask the average American to do something in seven days, they're probably never going to get to it. But if I ask somebody to take an actionable step in the next 24 hours, they're more likely. So if somebody is struggling with their mental health, what is something they can do in the next 24 hours to get some help?
0: Well, I, I love that question, and it's really a profound question. I think the most important thing you can do is to reach out to the support communities that you have. And just ask for help. This is the biggest challenge is, is the, I guess I could call it an admission, because that's what it feels like for a lot of people, that life is bearing down. Life is becoming too challenging, that you can't carry it all on your shoulders. My advice is commit in the next 24 hours to finding a resource to reach out to. And if you don't know what that is, and I can point you in the right direction, then get hold of me, and I'll keep it confidential, 100% confidential, and we can get you started in the right direction. I, I'm a life coach. I actually became an ordained minister so that all of my communications will be 100% privileged, sacred communications, so the confidence maintained. My goal is just to help you take a step. It's, it's my life mission to help you realize the grandest potential you have inside yourself. And so please reach out to me. If I'm that person in the next 24 hours, then make me that contact. But reach out. Reach out beyond yourself and stop trying to do it all. Stop trying to take it all on.
1: Okay, so now how did you know my next question? Because, um, like I said, I'm a believer. And I believe that God's putting people in my life. Um, for reasons. I, I don't believe anything happens on accident. But, uh, you know, I've heard and you know, I believe that um, if you don't feel close to God, you're the one that moved because he's here. He's in, in front of us You know, yesterday, today and tomorrow. So if somebody out there and like I said, I didn't know I was going to ask this question until we started talking. So um, I didn't know that you were a man of faith, but now I know that you're a man of faith. Um, if somebody's struggling with their faith, what is something they can close, get to get closer back to center?
0: You know, there, there was a, a wonderful guest I had on my podcast, Carrie A. Friedman. And Carrie is a police chaplain and rabbi. And Carrie really came up with this idea of having that absolute value system. We've got to get back in touch with it, whatever that is. And I know for a lot of folks, the belief in God is a challenge for them. So they take it all on themselves and then they suddenly realize, oh my goodness, I I can't do this. Right. Because it's bigger than us. I would ask everyone to go inside and say, what is it that I believe in that's beyond myself? Maybe you can't call it God because there is some seriously negative connotation you carry around that semantic, that word, that description. Maybe you, its source or spirit or the universe, maybe you believe, again, in that United States Constitution, or maybe you believe really passionately in something, but that something is where you can hang your hat. Find it. Spend time really reconnecting with it. And for a lot of folks, they find it in nature. One of the things that can awe us, and we realize how so tiny we are, right, is to get out into the magnificence of our great outdoors and spend time reconnecting with nature because nature is one of God's greatest expressions. And whether you believe in God or you don't, nature's gonna help you connect with something that goes way beyond this little myoptic version of ourselves and helps you to kinda dispense some of that negativity, that that lack of faith that's happening. And maybe there you find a little piece of magic that kindles within you that spark again. To say, you know, I'm going to get back into this thing that used to fill me up. I disconnected from it, but I'm feeling it a little bit again. I'm touching the edges of it. I think it's time for me to get back into it. That's how I would go about it.
1: I love it, brother. Um, Like I said, I'm so grateful that God has put us together. Um, I'm, I'm grateful for your friendship. And as people know, when you come on my show, I'm a little bit kind of a different dude. I don't ask <laughs> the same questions that everybody else asks. And for me, I believe that, you know, the relationship, when people come on my show, their relationship is just starting today. So I just want to say thank you, first of all, for coming on the show. And most of all, thank you for being a brother in Christ. Uh, I want to thank our, our sponsor, Soldier Girl Coffee. If you love coffee with uh, with a veteran twist, Definitely check them out. So um, this will go out in a couple weeks. So I'll send you all the graphics and everything. And I just want to say thank you for your friendship, brother.
0: It's my joy. I appreciate you, everything you're doing. Keep up the good work because we need these voices out in community helping us connect back into what's real, what's true. Let's keep helping the world take a step, brother.
1: And I'm pumped. I can't wait to read the book. I'm so excited to read it.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Let me know how that goes for you. And again, thank you for the deep honor of being on your show, man.
1: All right, brother. God bless you and the family. God bless you, sir. Hey, guys, if you're enjoying our show, if you love what we're doing, if you would like to support us, we have a whole bunch of great stuff coming out. We have a brand new T-shirt line that's coming out. Hats, coffee mugs, any kind of swag that lets your friends know that you support Vertical Momentum and you're always looking to get better. Also, we have our new coffee brand coming out. It's called Vertical Momentum Coffee. It's ass kicking coffee, and and it will it will get you moving in the morning. So, guys, if you are interested, go to www dot net. check us out leave us a note tell us what you'd like and we'll actually send it to you the new website is being built so if you guys want to our book is out there on amazon it's called a hero's journey from darkness to light definitely check it out it talks about my story but it also talks about how to survive depression how to survive addiction All right, guys, I love you. Thank you so much for always supporting our mission, which is to save lives. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share.
0: Please feel free to leave us a comment.